And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. I love Legos. Now that seems like kind of a non sequitur or a point of information that doesn't really mean anything, but if you give me a second, I will tie it into this whole thing. So Legos are you know small little blocks you connect and you build whatever you want. And in the early days, you kind of just built whatever your creativity allowed. But then the Lego Corporation got very smart and they started theming these things. And one of the themes were Legos, medieval times. Now that was kind of, that was the thing I loved. And I became kind of obsessed with them. I had lots of the Lego sets, Lego castle sets. And the one, the piece de resistance that I had was called the Black Monarch Castle. Now I was kind of a strange kid, believe it or not. And I loved following these, these instructions that, that came with the sets to the T. I liked building what I bought to build, right? If I wanted the castle, I wanted to build the castle and I wanted to do it properly. So I'd follow these instructions to the letter. And this one was the biggest, you know, it was a thousand plus pieces, the biggest thing I'd ever put together on my own. And I loved it. It was the point of pride. And everyone, of course, always wants a castle, but then you kind of grow out of that. Well, then I hear about a man named Michael Rubel. And he was a young kid in the 40s and 50s, and he would, you know, he lived next to a junkyard, and he would pull all this junk out and build these huge forts that he and his friends would hang out in, like these, you know, and then they would collapse and they would haul it away and he'd build new ones and I think he built one up to like three foot tall had like fire escapes and a flag on top things were incredible well that building bug never really left Michael and neither did his desire to build a castle so when he got older he got a piece of land and built a castle over the course of 25 years a real working castle this thing is incredible and it's, there's no real way to explain it I'm going to upload some videos on YouTube so you can get a peek into what this thing looked like but Michael's no longer with us. His legacy lives on in Scott Rubel, who was nice, who was nice enough to sit down with me. And so Scott and I are going to talk about all the different cool nuances of this real live working castle in Glendora, California, called Castle Rubel, which sits in the micronation of Rubelia. Scott, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. So now, you guys show the Huel Hauser interview. Mm-hmm. So you guys are pretty proud of that because you did a redo of him with him like in 2011. Was yes, it? 2011. Yeah. So how did you guys just like that interview? Or did he? Was it? The, have you guys ever been f- featured before? No. He. Well, we were featured a long time ago by Harry Reasoner in 1974, and uh, he's the first person to ever do a TV uh, television spot on us. Who's Harry and, Reasoner? So, Oh, I guess that's before your time, huh? He that's was a very famous uh, news reporter, and uh, there was a there were a few years when he wasn't on the news and he was doing his own show, where he did sort of like what you're doing. He featured different places in in the United States, hmm. and uh, he came here in 1974 when the castle was only a quarter of what it is now. Right, and uh, interviewed Michael, 
and Michael had to make him promise not to say where the castle was. And he really, felt, how yeah, come? Because he didn't want people to come here. He didn't want any tourists, and he was really? very busy. <laughs> oh, I see. He didn't want yeah. to be bothered. Yeah, and and plus, uh, you know, part of his being able to build this place was to not attract a lot of attention. Yeah. You know, so he made Harry Reasoner actually not film all the palm trees around here so people wouldn't even be able to figure oh, out the geography. Oh, right. And he did a show where he compared our castle to the European castles. Where oh, cool. He did a feature on how these people in Europe are having to rent their castles out and how and the contrast between that and Michael not, not wanting anyone to know where he is. Right. <laughs> well, so how did Reasoner hear about it then? Well, it was starting to get go through the grapevine by then, by the early 70s, you know, because we were doing a lot oh, of like work. that's like 15 years in, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that about really about six years into the actual concrete work. We were building oh, okay. foundations during the 60s. Got it. Um, but there wasn't anything much to talk about until about 1974. Then there were, there were things to show here by then. I see. You know, the first floor, a lot of the rooms were done on the first floor. So oh. there were things for Harry to talk about. And then that's you know. how we heard about it. So Yes. That's yeah. so interesting. Just kind of through the grapevine, you know, there were a lot of people starting to talk about it. And kids were starting to take tours here from the local schools oh. around then. Michael was a bus driver, too, so he... <laughs> he he would uh, charm all the kids and, and get bring them, to them over here. <laughs> and the work. Yeah. yeah, and it's still a tradition now. Every third grade class in Glendora takes a tour. Really? Here. Yes. Oh, that's cool. And, oh, uh, that's great. Yeah. It's, so it's like really a part of the community. Yes, it is. It's very popular. And, you know, all the Boy Scouts come and church groups. and Yeah. Yeah. Well, so uh, did you know blacksmithing is a merit badge? Did you did you know that? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's how Asa got started blacksmithing. It was oh, a Boy yeah. Scout merit badge, yeah. and that's how he became the blacksmith here. Yes. How yeah. crazy is that? Warren Asa, yeah, he's been around here for a good 40 years, the yeah. castle blacksmith. And <laughs> he passed the torch to John about a year ago, and yeah. John's now the master. It's so funny. <laughs> well, and, and so just so I'm clear on this, is... This is not really Rubel Castle. It's Castle Rubelia, right? No, it's we we everyone calls it Rubel Castle, but we do call it Rubelia. That's what we put on the sign. That right. We, the the big steel sign above the gate says Rubelia. Yeah. That's when by the time this was about two stories high, we started, you know, thinking of this place as a country and Michael liked that just fine since he liked doing anything he wanted and being the dictator. <laughs> so do you guys consider this a micronation? Or do you know what those are? No, I actually really? I can sort of uh, figure it out. But. Well, so there's it's a real concept. Uh, spoil, a little shameless plug here. I did a, a show on a micronation, the Kingdom of Molossia. Oh. And so there, there's actually a network of small nations, they're called micronations, yeah. that exist in in the world, throughout the world, uh, that they basically, you know, it's someone's yard or whatever. They're yeah. tiny, <laughs> tiny, but they consider themselves a nation and operate themselves like oh. a nation. Wow, I wish I would have looked into that so a long time ago. You guys, well, you can do that. You guys should absolutely declare yourselves a micronation. Yeah. Do, it, they, do they get have to pay taxes and everything? I don't know. I think it's. <laughs> I don't. I don't think they're technically. They still. They're still. According to the United States government, they're still considered uh, part of the United States. Oh, okay. But um, for fun, you know, it's really for fun. But yeah. they consider themselves a micronation. But you guys should absolutely look into that. If not, I will forcibly take over and declare myself <laughs> dictator. So you better get on that. That's, All right. 
that is a threat. That sounds I like we're on. vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> you are a castle, so I would have to storm it. Uh, so now, Michael is your uncle, right? Yes. How did you did he did he take you on one of his you know bus drives and trick you into coming in here? Like, how did you get started working? No, here? he actually was pretty good at trying to discourage me at first. You know, I was really? wandering around Glendora, and I started. We lived about a mile away from here. And um, I was just fascinated, and Michael kind of became my hero, I guess, as a little kid. Mm. You know, he would always visit us, ride down there on his horse, you know. So sure. he was a, a glamorous figure to me. <laughs> Did he have a suit of um, armor on when he was doing that? <laughs> no. No, okay. No, he wore like a Forest Service outfit back then with, with his, you know. <laughs> like a Mountie? Like, yeah, like <laughs> kind of like, well, it wasn't that brightly colored, but it was almost like camouflage with a mounty type hat. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and he would appear at our house on, on his horse, and, and I really looked up to him. And when the excitement started here in 1968, that's mm-hmm. when I started wandering around and, you know, just hanging around. Sure. And uh, helped him a little bit on the bottle house, which is the first structure that he built in 1968. And uh, I just hung around more and more until, you know, Michael appreciated the help even though I was only 12 years old right and uh but that's old enough to put someone to work yeah well yeah it certainly is I mean he's picking up third graders and making them (laughs) shovel concrete I mean like a 12 12 year old you know yeah yeah I don't think everybody knew back then how much their kids were doing (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if they have back problems later in life do you think well not like Michael did I'm I'm just only lucky to be 15 years younger than he was or I probably would have had the same trouble (laughs) oh really yeah he ended up having his spine fused in the 1980s in the late 80s. No kidding. Yeah, he had lots of trouble. Just He was too strong for his own good. Wow. You know, he could pick up anything, and I'm sure that just compressed his spine. You know, I saw him carry a refrigerator all by himself upstairs. You know, what? He and I would pick up telephone poles like these that are in the rafters here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just I would... pick them I, up? Yeah, I mean, it was easy for him, you know, and I was, a, you know, I built my strength up, but... <laughs> You know, if I had done it as long as he did or as often, I probably would be in just as bad a shape. Was it, Now, did he do that when he got really upset and turned green, or was this just his natural ability? Uh, you mean to... To lift oh, refrigerators over no, his No, he was just normal. Yeah, he just seemed to be able to do it. That's incredible. <laughs> and so the... And, but he had to have his spine fused it, so it really Later, took its toll. Yeah, yeah. It was it was really a disappointment, and, the, and that's why he didn't really finish the last part of the castle. He had a lot of um, older kids do that. Oh, and got like it. Ed Bennett, which this room we're sitting in is called the the Bennett Room. It's oh, really? named after Ed because this is the first room that he built. One of the ways Michael got the castle built was by uh, telling people they could have a room if they built it. <laughs> <laughs> and Ed wanted a big room. This is this is probably, a really big room. Yeah, this is the biggest room in the castle. No kidding. Yeah, and it, and uh, Ed built it a lot by himself. You know, because Michael told him he could have it forever. Yeah. And um, did you have to do like a certain percentage of the work? Like you have to do like eighty percent of the work. I, Ed pretty much did on this particular room. No kidding. Yeah, and then the other guy, like the print shop next door, that was built by another guy who had the same promise. He uh, originally built that as a pottery shop. Oh, and, no kidding. Yeah, his name was John Petrus, and yeah, he helped build that place over there and he was actually doing business from here which Michael discouraged and 
eventually really? forbade. So you couldn't and do business, but he, he had the blacksmith here. Was that only for people? Yeah, just for fun. Yeah, it's just for people to come and do their own things. So Beatrice's pottery and printing press, they put that out of well, business? Well, I, I started the print shop over there. Oh, uh, you oh. Af, af, long after Petrus was gone. So wow. he had potter's wheels in there, and it was a funny scene because he would have all these girls sitting out here in the Hey-oh. in the early seventies. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know long that's tables, like. <laughs> and he figured out he he tried being a potter first and couldn't sell anything, and then. Yeah. What he started doing is making macrame beads. He'd have these long tables, and he'd have about 15 teenage girls with pencils <laughs> r- rolling balls of clay across these doilies, and he would sell them for a dollar at Gemco, which was a, a department store down on Grand Avenue. Yeah. And he was making lots of money. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So he was a real entrepreneur. And that sounds great. So did Michael want to cut of this? Is that he wanted no, to get his no. beak wet on this, or what was no, the problem? No, Michael had to be very careful with how this place was perceived and used, mm. because he just wanted to build the castle. Yeah. And there was so much trouble with the city at the time; they were always trying to figure out a way to get rid of us. Oh, really? And yes, they they were. Why, why were they so know, stiff? Like why? Well, the tract housing is their master plan. You know, I, I, uh. I, when I was growing up here, it was pretty much the very end of the citrus industry. There mm-hmm. were only a few groves left up in this area. And um, there were, the city was very excited to have everything turn into tract houses, mm. including this, these two acres. Got it. And um, they tried all kinds of ways to get Michael out. And Michael was just so persistent and so unafraid to do anything he wanted. Yeah, you know that he eventually won out, right? You know, and by the, by the I think 1984 is when they finally gave up. You know, they they made him sign a contract saying that the whole place is condemned, and he understands that, and all that means is that he can't sell it. Oh, oh that's oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they just gave up. They let him keep building finally, and they so he just they, couldn't sell the castle. Yeah, they were wasting all their resources sending building inspectors here and. And uh, Michael just wouldn't stop. Wow. And uh, they even took him to court in the early 70s. You know, he was, and he was threatened with jail. Really? And they, yeah. And Over the, the castle? Yes. And the, jail for what? Because he wouldn't stop building. They'd keep red tagging the place. And, and they finally, uh, he finally was compelled to go to Los Angeles to court, uh, Los Angeles County. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Is this not Los Angeles County? Yeah, this oh, is. it is? Okay. Yeah. And... Uh, the judge basically said, you know, your place is, you know, everything you're doing is illegal. And Michael said, I know. <laughs> and, it, and the judge said, well, you understand that you have to stop building. And Michael said, I can't. Wow. You know, he was compulsive and, and he just had to stack rocks. Yeah. And and the judge was faced with quite a problem because Glendora was a very tight community. And my grandmother, Michael's mother, was probably one of the best loved people in town, mm-hmm. and putting her son in jail was going to be a problem. Oh, politically, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the judge finally, he didn't put him in jail, even though he threatened him with it. He just he finally gave the problem back to the city of Glendora. He <laughs> said, "He's just your problem, and you have to figure it out." And dude, it pays to have a lovable old grandmother. Yes, it does. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. gotten me out of a few problems myself. <laughs> So they so they gave it back to Glendora and they yeah. were like we don't yeah. care we don't well, care anymore. Yeah, they they still tried things and they had they had inspectors still coming up here. Michael had learned a few things from his uh, grandfather 
Um, my great-grandfather, Harry Duell, he came to live here in 1961. For a while, this was a four-generation house with, uh, between my grandmother and her father and Michael and me all living in the packing house over there. Oh, wow. And um, my great-grandfather was amazing. He was in his 90s. And yeah. His wife died, and he lived in Colorado, and he came to live here uh-huh. for the rest of his years. No kidding. And uh, he was a real guide to Michael. You know, he's back before the castle was even a thought. Michael was trying to figure out how to make money. He mm-hmm. was very poor, and, and uh, the reservoir was a real resource. And he, One of grandfather's first ideas was that he had seen a, a bunch of French restaurants in Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. he said the reservoir, back then it still had a lot of water in it. He mm-hmm. said, you could raise frogs here, frogs' legs. <laughs> and Michael <laughs> thought that was wonderful. And so Really? He, yeah, he stocked it with frogs, and they... And uh, it became, I don't know how many. They came in an ostrich farm. These yeah, it became <laughs> like a million frogs in here. And, wow. and he was, oh, the, the funny part of the story is grandfather told him, you know, you don't have to kill them. You like cut their legs off and they'll grow two legs back. And Michael thought that was, he just, wow. oh. he just saw profits. So oh, <laughs> if you do it surgically, you know. Uh-huh. And but that's not true. That doesn't happen. No. Yeah. <laughs> Michael was gullible. Oh. Which he <laughs> oh, that's so sad. Well, he didn't actually cut any legs off. He just couldn't sell them. And and it became such a problem because this reservoir was like an amphitheater. Yeah. And they yeah. had been building all these tract houses around here. And it just was a problem. All these frogs made this wretched noise all night long that sure. you could hear all the way over to Azusa. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to open up the drain and flush those down. Wait, what do you mean open up the drain? Like the, one by one the in the toilet? The had a big giant drain that went down, you know, to, to the flood control uh-huh. wash in Glendora. So he washed them. He washed them all away. He gave up on the business. Well, to where? Where did they it, go? Well, <laughs> they were supposed to go into the wash. And, but uh, what does that mean? Well, there, there's a long concrete channel that goes all the way from the mountains, the dam, yeah. Dalton Dam, and it come, runs through the middle of Glendora. It crosses kind of diagonally. And all the old citrus ranches, there used to be hundreds of reservoirs like this up here. Okay. And they all drained into that wash. It was a flood channel. And um, what Michael didn't know at the time was that there was a a construction project going on that had severed that drain line. And uh, when he washed the frogs down the drain, it didn't go into the wash. It started bubbling up in the middle of this big development that they were building down the street. So the frogs so, just bubbled up? And yeah, all this water and all the gunk and the algae and everything from the reservoir came up in the middle of this nicely graded, you know, they had all the pads done and the curbs to the streets. And oh, wow. <laughs> wow. And so that's one of the first really big bits of trouble he got in. With that's it. like public enemy number So he was really public enemy number one around here for a long <laughs> to, time. To the city he was. Yeah. The, a lot of the neighbors loved him. Not not everybody until right. the, the floods came. Yeah. But the, the floods really changed everything. In 1969? Yes. Well, let me ask you one. Of, I want to get to that, the 1969 floods, but... Now, Michael had a cannon, right? Well, yes, he had... The Civil War cannon? Well, when he, you mean when he the one he had when he was a kid? I mean he, the one that's sitting up on top, the live cannon that's sitting oh, up on top of your okay. turret right well, now. Well, the ones we have here are, are uh, all Civil War cannons. There are a couple of acetylene cannons made out of old irrigation pipe from the citrus groves, and those are left over from Michael's childhood days. And, uh, you know, Michael built forts all through his childhood. Uh-huh. 
started very young, and by the time he was nine, his forts were almost as tall as this castle is now. Right. And he made him out of junk, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was lucky because he lived next to a a city dump. (laughs) And it wasn't really a dump. It was like a storage yard where they put lots of construction materials. It was just a big open space of land that the city owned. Yeah. And uh, the house was right across the wash from that. So Michael went and started taking materials and building forts, and pretty soon he was building these giant towers on top of this junk pile. Wow. And um, they'd always get torn down by the city because they wanted to come get their stuff. You know, they, <laughs> they basically yeah. they knew they'd let them do it. Yeah. Um, well, they want their stuff But back. when they needed their stuff, they'd come and tie a hook to it and pull it down with a truck and take oh their stuff. God. And Michael would build another one. Wow. And um, It's like an ant. Like, he didn't care if the anthill gets kicked <laughs> no, over. Right. He just it right back up. <laughs> That's a good analogy. Thank you. I like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I do. There's a story he told one time of these acetylene cannons that he had learned how to make. Yeah. Um, Carl Gunn was one of the old timers up here. He was a rancher and he knew how to weld. Wait, hold on. And so a guy named Charles Gunn helped Carl him build, Gunn. Carl Gunn yeah. helped him build a cannon? Yes. Um, oh, that's he, awesome. All, all the old timers up here were kind of fathers to Michael uh-huh. as he was growing up. He lost his father when he was six. Wow. And uh, that's why he was wandering around all the time. Building and, forts. Yeah. And uh, Carl Gunn was one of those guys who just kind of encouraged him to be wild. And <laughs> That's just what you want. And, uh, and he kind of taught Michael how to make an acetylene cannon, and Michael had access to his tools and all that. Was it like a potato gun? or how? What no, is that? no, it's a big piece of irrigation pipe, and they, he'd weld a patch of steel on the back of it uh-huh. So and then drill a touch hole in the back. And then you put a piece of newspaper over the front with a rubber band and, and uh, fill it with a few minutes with a worth of acetylene from the cannon, and that's the propellant. Whoa. And uh, <laughs> usually you, that's all you do, and then it makes a lot of noise. You yeah. Know, you light it with a, with a match yeah. or a torch. Yeah. And, um, but you could use uh, projectiles, too. Yeah. Uh, that is like a potato. You know what a potato gun is, yes, right? Yeah, it's very yeah. similar, except this is, seems like a high-powered <laughs> potato gun. Well, they sort of were. They weren't accurate at all because <laughs> no, the projectiles, Michael uh, did odd jobs all over town. And uh-huh. one of the things he did was sweep the old print shop. Uh, and the linotype lead, the shavings were oh, all over the floor. No. Yeah. So he'd, he'd uh, pilfer some of the lead as he was cleaning up. You're supposed to put the lead back in the pot for the linotype machine. Right. But he would put some in his pockets, and every couple of weeks he'd get enough to, to put some in a coffee can. And then the coffee can would go, he'd melt it and put it in mm-hmm. the can. The can goes over the front of the cannon, and then he could shoot these Like cannon. a cannonball. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a linotype cannonball. Yeah. And, and uh, one time when he had one of these, he had a fort he was especially proud of. And uh, it was one that had two towers and a drawbridge that went between them. This and is a fort that he made? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, it was, it was really high. And the, there are pictures of it. I don't know if you've seen the castles. I haven't. Can I get those pictures from yeah. you? I'd like to put them online. Yes. The Castles by Mike book uh, has them, and I can give you digital ones. But oh, There's he, this clock tower in the background. Yeah. I hear that going. Yeah. Every half hour. Every <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the city told him, Michael, we're going to have to, we need all that stuff. We're going to come tear your your tower down. And Michael said, you better not. <laughs> he finally was putting his foot down after at, they tore what, five at, of them down. At nine years old, he's yeah. standing up to the man. <laughs> I think he was about 11 when that happened. Wow. And he, and he and his, Double digits. He and his friend Skipper and a bunch of other kids um, you had a friend named Skipper? Yes. <laughs> Trouble, doesn't he? Yeah, this, is, this sounds like something out of the 50s. Like... 
Yeah, and uh, so they got about seven of these acetylene cannons that Carl Gunn helped them make. He didn't know that they were planning to actually <laughs> use them on, <laughs> on people. Wage war on this. <laughs> wow. And they set the, he fortified oh, his towers and he set these cannons up. And when the, the city crew, they, the city had told them when they were going to come, and these trucks pulled up and he... He was ready. He just lit all the fuses and ran. <laughs> and all these coffee Holy cans started God. flying toward the street. He didn't hurt anything. You know, they all landed in the orange groves and everything. Right. But the city workers were grabbing their hard hats and running <laughs> back to the trucks and driving away. So he won for that day. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. But and surprisingly, even after that, he he still actually got a real cannon for a while when he was when he was about eleven years old, and it was a Krupp. Cannon. It was a German cannon that was in front of the city hall, hmm. and the city decided because of the sentiments around World War II that they shouldn't have a German cannon. And Michael <laughs> wanted it, of course. Of course. <laughs> and so he he uh, asked all the old timers if they would help him get it, and they said, "Well, you have to go through a legal process. Sure. The city was going to give it to Los Angeles, and maybe it was going to be melted down." Anyway, the way things turned out is Michael had to go to court to make a plea for him to get the cannon. Mm -hmm. And uh, Art Snydo was an old friend of the family's who was the judge. And, you know, so he acted pretty tough and he told Michael, well, you have to pay for it. You have to give us a dollar. And uh, <laughs> and he said, you have to be able to remove it in 24 hours, knowing that a little kid couldn't ever do that. Yeah. And Michael, you know, spent all night getting his friends and figuring out, you know, how they could ever do this. And it was a really big, serious cannon. Yeah. And nobody could. And he finally went to sleep and, you know, gave up on the idea. And the next day, the cannon was in his yard. No kidding. Yeah. Who put and it there? Carl Gunn. Carl, really? <laughs> <laughs> wow. This Carl Gunn, man. He's, he's got a cannon. He's got a trigger finger. And, and it was, he aimed it so Michael couldn't do any damage. He aimed it up toward the foothills, yeah. toward the mountains where there were no houses at, right. at the time. Wow. So no, they didn't bring up his priors in the in the court case about him laying siege no, to the none city of that workers. Apparently, came up. He just it was a simple case. He just went and made his plea, and those were the conditions, and they were met. So he got to keep his cannon. Wow. And then uh, later, there was, there were people who kept trying to get it away from him, and finally, somebody oh, somebody once offered him something like five hundred dollars for it. I think he said for the German cannon. Yeah, and he didn't know what that meant. You know, he didn't know anything about money. and uh, But then somebody else was clever enough to offer him an old shotgun, and he traded the cannon for a shotgun. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Not a $500 shotgun, no, I'm assuming. No, yeah, yeah. it was like a, probably a $70 shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's simple economics, you know. If the kid doesn't know what to do with $500, right. make up, give him a good trade, what he believes it's worth. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, later he would learn a lot about money, you know, traveling the world. Yeah. And uh, the, what did he do for money? Just odd jobs, bus driver? Well, this, feel, this place feels very expensive to put together. I know it's a <laughs> lot of, you know, it's a lot of, it, I think it's been called the, the largest recycled project yes. in the world, or the first at least. Well, yeah, I would, I'd comfortable calling it the first, at the least first. To, okay. around here. You know, <laughs> the first know around many. here. <laughs> Fair enough. In yeah. these two acres, it was the first. It's very true. But he, when he started building the castle, you know, of course, there was still no money, and he was a young man, and he was doing odd jobs. Uh, he was a skip tracer for a while, finding people who 
owed money to banks, you know, and he got mm. hired for that. And then later he was a bus driver. But like a bounty hunter almost. Yeah, kind of. Sort he of. would just find them, basically. And he didn't even, he would try to collect, but he didn't really have to. He just had to report them to the bank, you know, people who had skipped out on their loans. Right. He didn't have to bring and, them in like a bounty hunter would yeah, have to do. And yeah. he had a, in fact, a couple of years ago, I heard from a guy who worked with him as a partner. And the guy said, he, you know, he was never going to be good in that business. He would always hear their sob stories and give them back their money. And <laughs> <laughs> Help them get out. Yeah. yeah, he was too sympathetic. <laughs> so uh, he didn't last a long time in that job. Yeah. But, um, and he had a lot of other jobs. And the, as a and as a little kid, he had jobs all the time, too. Yeah. Uh, he once said that his, his mother was the smartest person he ever knew. Because uh-huh. You know, he had a lot of quotes from his grandfather and, you know, quips about life and all that. But he said the smartest thing he ever heard was from his mother who told him every single day, go outside and play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, that right. was, and that's what he did. And he was playing, but he would get, you know, taken up by these ranchers around here and put to work, you know. Yeah. Either lighting smudge pots or uh, shooting gophers. Jeez. And, uh, that was a job? Yeah, they would pay for gopher tails. <laughs> 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 and wow. uh, so he'd trap them and shoot them, you know, so he was always walking around here with a with a gun as a little kid. Sure. And a lot of the kids were. Yeah. And it was just normal back then. In sure. fact, they used to play army with real guns. <laughs> their their fathers had all given these kids old shotguns, like pinfire shotguns uh-huh. that weren't very powerful from the 1800s. Right. And then they all played army with those. And they'd shoot each other? Yeah. With, like, salt pellets? They had to play. They played in the orange groves, and the rule was that you couldn't shoot somebody unless he was 13 trees away. So you'd count 13 trees, and then you could pull the trigger, and it wouldn't really hurt. You'd just know you'd been shot, and you could play dead. Wow. (laughs) How do you... (laughs) <laughs> Why do you pull count thirteen when you got like a guy in your sights? You well, know, you, the the they, hunger they for pretty, the ultimate think, game is in your. Yeah, you don't have to spend very long when you're used to the orange groves. You know how far so. things are. Yeah, and uh, when there was actually a town hall meeting talking one time when a, I think a kid actually, you know, got a big bruise because he was only eleven trees away or something and. Is a town hall a, meeting about this? Yes, they had a town hall meeting. Ask, it's like know, Mayberry around here. To talk about if they should take the guns away from all the little kids. Yeah. And they decided not to at the time. Wow. <laughs> That's so crazy. Because they were too valuable. The kids, you know, were doing all this work for the ranchers. Sure. And uh, so, you know, that was just part of the adventure that they had. Yeah. And this is the this is the the environment that forged Michael into the... Oh, yeah. Was. He was a completely free child. You know, his because his father had died so young, his mother was obsessed with making a living. And mm-hmm. That's why the, the why they go outside and play. Sure. You know, she just was couldn't do anything but let him go. Yeah. And in fact, when uh, he and Skipper were running around all the time together. Yeah. And uh, Skipper's mother came to my grandmother Dorothy one day and said, "You've you've really got to rein that kid in. You got to you should discipline him once in a while." And and they're they're always running around doing strange things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Dorothy said, I think he was just meant to live. <laughs> I <laughs> guess that that's one end. way to avoid disciplining. Yeah, <laughs> that was the end of that. Yeah. And and Skipper ran a for a while as a kid, he's one of his jobs was a projectionist in the theater down in, in downtown, mm. which we don't have anymore. But right. um and that one of the things they did with their guns was Michael would walk down there at the end of the night. 
when the movies were over, and Skipper would be rewound, rewinding the film, and he'd bring the 22 rifles into the projection booth, and they'd uh, flip the, all the lights on in the theater and, and shoot rats. So Jeez. every time they had giant rats from eating buttered popcorn, so they'd, <laughs> <laughs> so they'd wow. flip the lights on and shoot a rat, and they'd all run away, and they'd flip them off for a while. They'd flip them back on and shoot another one. And they'd, then they'd go sell those tails to the farmers up here. <laughs> so rat tails? Yeah, just the farmers would pay for any kind of rodent tail. Wow. <laughs> this is a very interesting way of living back then. Yes. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think I could live back then. Really? Yeah, I don't think I, I don't. I'm not a big fan of shooting stuff. No, no, it was it it, it was this kind of a natural way of life. I mean, people yeah. had to cope with all this. Sure, I imagine if you're a farmer and the gophers are eating everything. Yeah, I get it. I'm just saying, me personally, I'm not judging it. I'm just oh, I don't yeah. know if I, I don't know if I can do that. Yeah, I have to find another way to make money. <laughs> but I imagine, I mean, this house wasn't this castle. Pardon me, excuse mm-hmm. me. Uh, this castle was not built on gopher tails alone. So, I mean, like, how, how was it funded? Okay. Well, I mean, this is a monumental project. This yes, place is gigantic. It it's, in, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it wasn't just recycled stuff. No, no. And it had to be build, built from real cement. Right. You know, like, Michael had access to everything in Glendora. He, uh, even in the 50s, things were starting to break down as far as the citrus industry goes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Michael was always getting cars either for free or for five dollars from people because after World War II, people had money. Yeah, and uh, they were buying new stuff, and Michael would go ask for cars. Getting rid of old cars. Yeah, he he would he would uh, joyride these cars. Sometimes just wreck them completely in the orange groves. And uh, hold on, hold on. (laughs) You mean he would just drive them around and and wreck them? They didn't cost him anything. He he always thought he could get another car, so he'd drive them around. And uh, wow. one time his mother asked where all these cars were going because he'd come home with a car and maybe in a couple of weeks it wouldn't be there anymore. Right. She, she finally asked him to take her for a ride, probably when he was 13 or something. And, and uh, he took her for this a when ride. when he's 13 he's he, getting these cars? Yeah. I mean, he couldn't, wasn't allowed <laughs> to drive on the streets, but kids can drive farm vehicles and stuff. So mm-hmm. he would drive in the orange groves and no one would bother him. Wow. And he took his mother for a ride one time, and she said, Michael, this, you can't ruin a car driving this slow. And he said, well, I usually go faster. And she said, well, go faster then. And <laughs> he went faster, and she said, well, you're still a pretty good driver. You know, you're not going to wreck a car. And he said, see that tree coming up? Throw your door open. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how he uh, communicated to her what was happening to all the cars. Just ghost riding them into the yep. trees. Wow. <laughs> And wow. so, and some of them are still down there. You can the, see the, some, the cars are. Yeah, they're they're running old trucks, you know, flatbed farm trucks, uh-huh. and some of them don't have cabs because they've been taken off by tree limbs and stuff like that. Wow, <laughs> man, he yeah, he really but, did get away with a lot. He was. I've got a brother like this who mm-hmm. is the luckiest person. I mean, look, he gets into trouble. He does really mm-hmm. stupid things all mm-hmm. the time. And he'll tell you as bad luck, but I watch him, and I'm like, for the, the amount of things that he does, yeah. his luck is incredible. Really? <laughs> and I feel like Michael, and my brother's name is Michael as oh, well. Really? I don't know if that yeah. means anything. It might. Um, but it sounds like m- your Michael mm-hmm. was extraordinarily lucky in life, just in general. He was, yeah. He He always, even near the end of his life, he just said how grateful he was that everything just worked out yeah and even during the the castle building process when people were worried about how things how he would do something or 
how he would get a tool or how he'd move something. And Michael always said, don't worry, when we need it, it'll, it'll be there. And it was. Yeah, and it al always was. And th that included back to the money thing. Yeah. Uh, when he started building the bottle house, he was so poor, he was driving all the way to Colton and shoveling his own cement off the ground that was spilling out of the hoppers, you know, when they were uh -huh. filling the trucks. Yeah. And bringing his own cement back because he couldn't buy bags of cement down at the hardware <laughs> store. Wow. <laughs> wow. And finally, um, you know, one of the old timers named Stan Baird uh, told Michael to buy all his cement on, on his account at the hardware store. Whoops. And uh, Wiley, yeah, well, given an alcoholic like the, uh, oh yeah, just yeah, put, it, put it on my tab. He probably, well, he knew Michael since he was a baby, but he probably still misjudged how persistent Michael was yeah, going to oh, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's and a monumental so he mistake. Paid for cement all until he died, you know. And he, when Michael went down, died to destitute the, in, uh, <laughs> in debt to the <laughs> hardware store. No, he was not destitute. Yeah. He was a kind of. It's a funny story. This place is actually partially funded by McDonald's. The, the uh, uh, fast food place? Yeah, Stan Baird had, his parents had sold a piece of property when he was young, and he took the money and loaned it to the McDonald's brothers uh -huh. when they were just had that little restaurant in San yeah. Bernardino. When they were the McDonald's brothers. Yes, <laughs> before Ray Kroc owned it. Right, and right. So when it became McDonald's, you know, Stan Baird lived off, uh, he had a percentage coming in for the rest of his life. Oh, oh so this oh so don't feel too bad for No Stan no Baird. he had plenty of plenty of money in fact when Michael went down to the hardware store the first time to get his cement uh, Walt Wiley also knew Michael since he was a baby and Walt said give me your money first <laughs> <laughs> Michael said no put it on Stan Baird's ticket and Walt said he wouldn't do that. He's a tightwad, and, and Michael well, said, "Give him a call." And, and uh, about to be a hole in that purse. Yeah. <laughs> Walt went and picked up the phone, and he came back shaking his head. He said, "I can't believe it." And wow. He, and he loaded up the Michael's truck with bags <laughs> of cement, and uh, that's the way it was ever after. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because there is a lot of cement here, and I think mm. I even heard Michael in one of his interviews say that you could. This place is earthquake proof. You could turn it upside down. Yeah. I mean, there's cement <laughs> where cement shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's plenty of steel. We have rebar, uh, not official rebar. Yeah. Um, all the corners of these buildings are are have railroad tracks set in in deep holes in, in yeah. the ground, and then the railroad tracks. A lot of them are wrapped with steel cable that we got from junkyards and from uh, the citrus groves. Sure. And then all the structural metal came from things that were being torn down around Glendora. Wow. So it is very structurally and sound. I think so. Yeah. 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 And, and we've been through some pretty big earthquakes. And in fact, uh, in the eighties. Have you ever heard of a book called The Control of Nature mm -mm. by John McPhee? Sounds like right up my alley, yeah. though. Yeah, John McPhee is a real famous geology writer. Uh -huh. And uh, he wrote this book, The Control of Nature, and he stayed here for about two weeks while he was writing the book, um, studying this area because he was curious why the castle doesn't fall down mm. in earthquakes. And he concluded that this is an alluvial plate, and it kind of slides when there's a bad earthquake. It's actually gentler up here where we are. All the rock, the bedrock, jars around, but the but the alluvial plate kind of floats on top of it. What? And so it's not not that harsh, you know. That's incredible. Level. That's what how he wrote it in his book, anyway. Huh. And um, 
That's and amazing. So far, actually. it's been true. <laughs> That's There's really only crazy. like one big crack that I know of, and that crack is—it's a funny thing because it crack opens up a little, yeah, and then a few years later, it's closed again, and then it opens again, and it's just the That's earth. That's weird. Yeah, <laughs> it opens and then closes. Yeah, this the earth breathing or something. Sure. <laughs> uh, so did um, uh, did Stan ever want like a piece of the castle for donating so oh, much no, concrete? No, Stan Stan Baird was one of Michael's. Michael had all these mentors, and Stan yeah. was one of his favorites. And in fact, during the 70s, he had what he called Stan Baird Night, which is Stan could come over and do anything he wanted. You know, <laughs> nobody else could have an audience with Michael. Stan would come over, and they'd either sit in his, his refrigerator bedroom over there in the packing house and drink uh-huh. wine, or, or they'd go out and, you know, they. He just did whatever Stan wanted to do. He just reserved Wednesdays for Stan. <laughs> well, I imagine since this is all, basically you're sitting on Stan's money. I mean, it's all around you. Yeah. So you got to yeah. give him a day of the week. <laughs> That's least. right. Well, let's talk about the Bottle House because of all the, I mean, look, this place has a lot of amazing structures, rooms. Uh, there's a lot of cool things about it. But the thing, the place that struck me personally was the Bottle House because it's Gorgeous. Yes. I mean, genuinely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's like a, it looks like a small little shed. Yes. And it has um, wine and champagne bottles mm-hmm. stuck into it. So when you're inside the room, the actual necks of the bottles are all pointing inside. Yes. But if it's you know if it's sunny outside, the sun goes through these beautiful yes, bottles. Yeah. It's gorgeous. It in is. There. It really is. Uh, so like, how what made him want to build that? That was cause that was the first structure that was built y- here, right? Yeah, the first concrete structure that he built at the castle. Uh, and that's that's when he was going and getting his own cement on right. the ground. So that's like and a I mean that's talk about a passion project. Yeah. Well, and he was he was kind of driven and it's unclear whether he was really getting ideas about the castle yet mm-hmm. at that time. He probably was, but he built the bottle house basically to be alone, mm-hmm. you know, because his mother and grandfather were were living there in the Tin Palace, which is the name for the packing house. Mm-hmm. And um where his mother had all the parties. Yes, and, and he couldn't stand. the. It was just so noisy and active all the time. Um, I read, somebody else wrote about him one time, a woman who dated him when he was building the bottle house. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, she asked him, you know, why would you do something like this? And he said, I just don't understand those people talking about his mother <laughs> and his grandfather. He says... They stay up all night, and all they do is drink. Mm. And they just, <laughs> I have to get my sleep. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's how I would feel. And so he built that just to have a place to sleep at night that was away from the noise. Wow. His mother's parties. Wow. <laughs> and it's just a it's a humble little thing, and the bed is up in the loft. You go up a little stepladder and yeah. up into the loft. And later on in years, when we were building the castle, he'd make newcomers um, sleep in there to find out if they really, it was kind of a test to find out if they really liked the place. Cause that's amazing. For a long time, we had no electricity down in there. You know, mm-hmm. we all had, I lived in there off and on for a few years and there was just kerosene lamps in the stove. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, and you had to get up early cause as soon as the sun hit that tin roof, it oh, turned yeah. into an oven. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and true. so it made sure, you know, it was kind of his training for new workers, you know, they'd be up. They can handle that. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and so did you handle it? I mean, that sounds oh, miserable. Yeah. You just couldn't live in it during the day very much, you know, during the summer. 
So you were always ready for work in the morning. I guess <laughs> it's know, true. You get up as soon as the it got warm and go in the kitchen. Michael would be cooking breakfast for whoever was here. Yeah. And Michael cooked a giant breakfast every morning. It was always uh, oatmeal and boiled cabbage and soft boiled eggs and sometimes hmm. even some steak. Wow. <laughs> really? What, yeah, that's what he put his money into, I think. All the food? Yeah, just food to, to keep everybody happy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds incredible. So now talking about everyone being happy, let's talk about 1969, because when these floods happened, now you said the, the neighborhood kind of changed their opinion of him. Yes. So let's talk about before and then after. Yeah. What exactly does that mean? Well, sounds ominous. Okay. <laughs> well, before, the whole 60s were full of, of Michael's activities trying to make money here. Mm-hmm. Um, after the frog incident, he tried growing eggplants and cucumbers and... Wow. different things. He actually had this whole reservoir, which is about a, a 185 feet in diameter. He covered the whole thing, made it a hothouse. He covered it with all this hothouse material and tried to do a fancy gentry farming type mm. thing with eggplants and cucumbers. And that also failed. He was just a bad businessman. And even though with massive amounts of work, mm-hmm. you know, he had, and he had help even back then, he had this way of just attracting people. People would follow him and do what he told them. Yeah. You know, pick up a shovel and dig. Despite how goofy and the <laughs> ideas were. <laughs> and so up until then, you know, and then he had a little stint in the in the uh, Marines. And uh, he was also traveling a lot. But Michael was in the Marines? Yeah, just in the Marine Reserves. Wow. At, uh, Camp Pendleton. Um, just for a, a while. They, yeah. they didn't really want him there after a while. I, yeah, it didn't, didn't seem like army material. <laughs> fact, when his commander went, told him that uh, that his code was uh, 0731. I don't know if this is real. I've never looked it up. But Michael said, what does that mean? He says, the commander said, you don't work well in groups. <laughs> Michael said, what does that mean? He said, that means if we're in a foxhole and I need to light a cigarette and I'm out of matches, I'm going to send you over to the enemy's side to get the matches <laughs> from the commander over there. <laughs> if you need matches, you need matches. <laughs> and wow. so so, um, so Michael built the bottle house in 1968. And yeah. then uh, in 19, and that's the same year these giant fires happened all over Southern California. And one of them started almost right across the street here mm. and burned all the foothills here. And um, Michael's friend Skipper warned him, and everybody everybody was a little skeptical of how bad Skipper was making it because he can be apocalyptic. But <laughs> this time he he turned out to be right, and he told Michael, "When next winter, you're gonna lose everything. Uh-huh. You know, there was no wall around this place." And he said the floods are gonna come, and and uh, he's the one who motivated Michael to start early and build all these barricades and all these walls on the, on the north side of the Tin Palace to try to protect the buildings. Mm-hmm. And um, when the floods actually came, these torrential rains, uh, it made news all over the... It was worldwide news, actually, because it affected all of Southern California from Santa Barbara down practically to Mexico. There were fire, wow. these giant fires and then giant floods everywhere. And so when the floods came here... They, the city, it's 
the city won't admit it, but we think that they tried to actually funnel the wa- the mud right into our, <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> made, <laughs> made a bullseye out of our buildings. Normally I'd say that's a little much, but I, I'm a conspiracy theorist. I, he did launch cannons, shoot cannons at the fort. <laughs> yeah, there, so, there was some revenge to yeah, be Yeah, there might be something to that story. That so, theory. yeah, they, they should have made the mud go down uh, Live Oak Avenue there. Yeah. And... Um, by the time the mud was, this wall of mud was rushing down here. That's crazy. Skipper went and, and uh, requisitioned a tractor, which meant that this tractor was up, belonged to the flood control people, and he, he uh, hot-wired it and started pushing everything <laughs> around, trying to divert the mud down to Live Oak and yeah. driving it around until it, until it ran out of gas. <laughs> and then we started using our own tractors. Yeah. I was just a little kid, so I was just, you know, wasn't much help, but I was here. Right. And then Michael built, built these barricades that Michael had built were starting to come down against the mud, too. And then every time those came down, we were ready with sandbags, and we had sandbags st- stacked eight feet high. Wow. And the mud came in under the packing house and into the, you know, poured into the wine cellar, and it was terrible, and it was doing this, of course, to everyone's houses, all the all these tract houses, which were new at the time. Mm-hmm. It was coming through our driveway and then turning um, down that cul-de-sac on the east side, and that's what really changed everything is that we had so many volunteers here, probably 100 people, and more than we could use, and we sent them out. You know, on patrols to help other neighbors, and we dug people out, and people actually slept here in the packing house and sleeping bags no while kidding. while they got their houses fixed, and it just changed the neighborhood sentiment towards us yeah. completely. And after those floods, there, we didn't have any enemies left. Really? Uh, yeah, <laughs> as far as the neighbors go. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm sure that that didn't really. It probably set the mayor and the city council and all that. Stuff. Yeah, they were because, still against you. Yeah, Michael. The city didn't save anybody. Right. Michael got all the credit. It's amazing, <laughs> as he deserved. Now, did, now, didn't Michael run for city council? Too? Yeah. So he uh, tried to get his way into politics. I think in 1970 or 71, he ran for city council. Yeah. For some reason, he thought that would solve his problems he, he yeah. thought he was going to be threatening to all these councilmen who were against him yeah and uh he his natural way was to not take things that seriously and he didn't and he one of his mottos <laughs> was what the hell vote for rubel <laughs> one man can't ruin everything <laughs> and uh so so that didn't work out. He probably he pretty much lost in a landslide. Yeah, no and, pun intended. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and one of his best friends, Nick Moffat, kind of sabotaged him too to do him a favor. You know, nobody wanted to see him win because they knew it would ruin his life. Really? Yeah, Nick. Nick. Why they, would it ruin his life? He'd uh, be empowered then, finally. Yeah, but then he couldn't. He'd never be able to work here. It would be like conflict of interest, and uh. it would just. Even he admitted later, he said, I would have never built the castle if that uh, I had won that election. Wow. And one time he was down for a debate in, at the city hall, and he found out later that Nick had posted all these derogatory... Uh, one of the worst things he said was, Michael doesn't believe women should vote. <laughs> <laughs> and so oh he was in, in the 60s. This, That's not going to go over well. Yeah. And, so, so, and people believed all that stuff, and he found out later that his friend Nick had done this. Yeah. And he said... Why did you do that to me? And Nick said, "Because you're goofy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. you're, and you're supposed to be doing other things." <laughs> 
And so he did it out of love. Yeah. And uh, and probably. And well, did he admit that? Like, did he admit, go to the women and say, "Look, I'm just kidding. Michael Rebell's all for <laughs> women's votes." Yeah, yeah, yeah. He tried to. Otherwise, deny you it. you got rid of all your enemies and then made them all back. Yeah, yeah. Well, he at first he joked about it, and then he found out that they were they really did think that. Oh, you know, wow. like because he didn't know about that sign outside sure, the city yeah, hall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to come clean with that. Yeah. Uh, now, before we finish here, I, I, we'll be remiss if we did not talk about one of the coolest things here, um, which is that there is a clock tower here yes. that I know has been mentioned before, but I think it, it bears repeating because this is such a cool story. Um, let's talk about this beginning and end because this is a very rare, almost, I would argue, one of a kind at this point, um, clock tower. So let's talk about how Michael got a hold of this. Where did his interest in clock towers come from? Because he seemed to be obsessed with this almost more than the castle. Yeah, well, he was always obsessed with mechanical things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he fixed cars ever since he was a kid. And and he loved all the all the old pump engines. That he fixed cars? And he was, you mean fixed them by just running them into trees? and destroy Well, them? he could fix an engine still, though. You know, oh, he okay. could keep the cars going as long as sure. possible. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so they weren't structurally but, sound anymore. Yeah, right. and, he, and from his days working with the ranchers, he knew how these pump engines worked, these giant pumps with the flywheels, and he just loved all this mechanical stuff. And um, w one of the... One of the stories I remember him telling was when he went to... There it is, right on cue. Look at that. One o'clock. That's you ask and shout, you shall receive. <laughs> he, uh, he, I, we didn't really talk a lot about his travels to Europe and Asia, but he did all that when he was a teenager. Mm -hmm. um, he basically went by himself to all these different places and bummed around. Mm -hmm. uh, and one time when he was in England, he went to see Big Ben. And he was so fascinated by it, he charmed the the gatekeeper after Big Ben was closed for tours. He said, I really need to see the inside of that thing. Mm -hmm. And he managed to get the guy to take him inside and take him where nobody gets to go, and all the way up to the top and mm. see how the whole thing works. All the intricate yeah. components. And he was uh, 18 or so at the time. Wow. And he, he told the gatekeeper or the tour guide, you know, I'm going to have one of my own of these, these one day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, he made it come true. He um, actually started looking for clockworks pretty young in life. Really? And um, I don't know, when you took your tour, if you saw the, all the ham radio equipment, some of that was set up mm. by him to look for clockworks. This was before the Internet. That was so, like the Internet, kind of. Yeah. Internet of word of mouth. So at the time, he thought that... Um, he would have to find a clock maybe in Europe, like all these churches, uh, church in Italy mm. would get torn down or something. Sure. So he would, every once a week, he had a time when he'd sit down at the ham radio and broadcast what he wanted. I want a clock and bells, I want a clock and bells, and he'd sure. do this for years. Yeah. And, um, and in the 60s, he had also seen this weight-driven clock, and his 1890 patent Seth Thomas clock, which was, he found out later, was rare. Um, his grandfather had taken him to Stanford to see where he went to college. My great-grandfather was graduated from the first class at Stanford when it was, oh. when it was founded. Wow. And, um, in fact, he was recruited. He was given his scholarship by Leland Stanford. No kidding. And uh, so he was very proud of that and took Michael all the way up there to see the, the grounds. And Michael, of course, had to see the clock, and he went inside and... and 
that's what he fixated on. He wanted that, on that clock. clock. Yeah. Was that a set? You said that was a set Thomas yes. clock? Yes. I believe it was, or some kind of weight-driven clock like that. Right, right. But most likely Seth Thomas. And um, so later he finally found out that the Bausch & Lomb factory in New York had a clock they had bought in the early 1890s. And before they had even installed it, apparently, the electric versions of these clocks had come out, which, which, which were much easier to operate. Even in the 1890s? Well, by I think by about 1900 is when, like, they hadn't installed so ten, it yet. Oh, got it, okay. Tower. So wow, brand new. They had this thing sitting around in crates, but uh -huh. of course it was worth a lot. They wanted to sell it, and and Michael just couldn't come up with the money. And at first they weren't going to give it to him at all. And, and uh, he w one day was sitting next to another one of his old mentors, Lorne Ward, who was getting very old by then. And... Uh, he was on the phone, and he had just found out how much this clock would cost, and he, he told the guy at Bausch & Lomb, never mind, you know, and he hung up the phone, and Lauren said, what's the matter? And Michael said, I, there's just no way I can get that clock. And Lauren asked how much, and we none of us still know how much it was. Really? But yeah, I, he's never revealed it. I think it was quite a lot. And Lauren said, well, I've never done anything for you. Why don't I buy it? And they give they they do give a price on the tour. Do you want it? Am I going to? Yeah, I actually I know if they know. Well, you, I heard two hundred thousand dollars. Am I allowed to say sounds, that? That sounds about right. Okay. Yeah. So I just spoiled that for you. I just gave you information well, no, you didn't I, have. I mean, you're, I kind of have that. Like you're interviewing me almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of have that figure in my head, but I've never seen it written down or. But that's quite a bit of money to just give someone. But I mean, yeah, uh, how well, good of friends were they? They were well. That he's another one who knew Michael since he was a baby. Yeah. And uh, and so when when Michael contracted to have the clock shipped out, he still had the problem when he was he wanted the bells too, from somewhere. He was still broadcasting to Europe the whole time he was waiting for the clock, and uh, when the when the Freightliner was loading up, they said, this thing is like, I don't remember the weight, something like 14,000 pounds. And wow. Michael thought there was a mistake, you know, because the, the clock couldn't weigh that much. And they, when they, f Michael finally, he called the Bosch and Lom factory, said, if this isn't what I'm buying, you have to give my money back. And they said, of course, we'll stand behind it. And when the truck came and they packed all the crates, the bells were in there. And that hadn't been part of the bargain. And he, he was, what are they going to do with the bells? Yeah, he was so honest that he called the factory back and he said, well, you sent me these, these beautiful bronze bells, which right. were exactly what I wanted. And, you know, <laughs> but I didn't pay for them. Yeah, and they said, no, we stand behind what we sold. You can have the whole thing. Wow. And so everything was ready. And, and the biggest bell up there, I think, weighs over 2,000 pounds. And we hoisted it up there and it's still in place. And... Wow. You know, serves the whole community. So how, how did he? So did he put? The, how did he put this thing together? I mean, cause it just arrives in crates and pieces. And yeah, like... well, there he he figured it out. You know, basically, and I'm I remember there being some sort of pictures of how things went together, or identifying the parts, but not a instruction manual. Mm -hmm. So he spent probably a good year just piecing gears together and figuring it out and it was something he could do with his bad back too mm -hmm. and while people were other people were finishing the tops of the towers and stuff 
So he. Um, but it's still a monumental task, like piece gear and yeah, I mean with. Oh yeah. So there wasn't an instruction manual. I mean, this is it, like. As far as I remember, I remember just insane. seeing a picture, you know, of parts I identified. Right. And uh, there were a couple of gears missing that he had to have made and replace those, and. Um, everything else is kind of jerry-rigged you can tell like some of the things look like they're they're handmade you know sure yeah because the cables didn't come with it and all that right so we right, made right. our own weights the weights didn't come either we made our own it didn't come with a it's a weight-driven clock yeah but i think they're you're expected to get your own, own get your own weights well your own lead you know you can make your own weights or you could buy weights pretty easily in the 1890s yeah <laughs> 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 yeah, well, because <laughs> it has to be a specific weight, I assume. Yeah, I don't know how specific it is, but you're probably right. Yeah, I mean, it has to be like a, I would imagine if it's a pendulum, it's got a, the weight at the bottom has to determines how it's gonna, you know, go back and forth, which determines how long a second is by yeah. the mind of a clock. Well, that's well, and the pendulum is another neat story. Uh, the technology of that clock is pretty advanced. There's a vessel of mercury in the pendulum. The vessel of mercury. Yes, yeah, so and when the when it heats up and it, you know, the pendulum has to expand and contract with the heat. Uh huh. Um, so this mercury is meant to go up a tube and compensate for the center of balance and keep the pendulum. Wow. Swinging at just the right speed. That's it's, that's it's, that is genuinely incredible. It is. It's really it, it's amazing these machines from the 1800s. It's all very. That's why like, steampunk's so cool. Yeah, you know? it it's is. like this whole idea of you know advanced technology with old equipment. Yeah, you know, yeah. like th but that's incredible. I mean, that's that represents to me human ingenuity. Oh, right? it is. Because like now you can get lazy with a computer because a computer can do anything. So you can yeah. program it to do anything, and it's amazing. Don't get me wrong, but if you have to make a pendulum be accurate when it heats up Isn't and you put mercury yeah. in the middle of it, that's incredible. It, yeah. It really Really is, and watching how some of these machines work, like the old water pumps and and my printing presses over there, the old letter presses. Yeah, they're just amazing machines, and they'll go forever as yeah. long as you put oil on them. Yeah. Well, the one thing, <laughs> well, the one thing I forgot to mention that's kind of cool is there's like a 16 ton single piston engine that yeah. powers. Uh, a water fountain. Yes. Which the is the <laughs> definition of like Rube Goldberg, like over engineering, yes. <laughs> you know, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that was a pump engine we got out of the, uh, that was a pump engine for the city of Laverne. Uh -huh. um, and we got it out near Route 66 back in the early 60s. Yeah. And Michael had always wanted these engines. He knew where they all were because he spent so much time in the mountains as a kid. Yeah. He knew where everything was. You know, everything he ever wanted, he could go back. He had a photographic memory. He could find hmm. the old gold mines in Azusa and go get stuff out of those. Oh, wow. He was amazing. And so the first engine we got was the smaller one that originally ran a little hibachi barbecue that when when he first set it up wow. it was this giant pump engine and we got it from the from the hills in glendora that pumps water out of the springs mm -hmm. and um he got it set up here in time for uh, a big easter egg hunt which was a big tradition here. Mm. and uh hundreds of people would come to to hunt easter eggs and that year i think it was 1963 they came and it was a little before my time but i was mm. here and uh, people came and saw this pump engine chugging away, making all this noise and the flywheels and my uncle's there in his overalls and sure. pumping oil everywhere. And he's so happy. And there was a, this, this pump's meant to bring thousands of gallons of water right. out of the mountains. <laughs> of course. He had it on going from the pulley down to a little 
brick pad running a hibachi and a single chicken was going around over the coals. <laughs> and there were 300 people waiting to eat. That's so funny. That's amazing. And, and then the other machine is twice as big as that one, and that's the one from Laverne. And when he set that up, he... Um, he ran it so the radiator water went into the bird bath. Oh, so I got pump, it. Pumped the radiator water into there. And it, it, at first, I think, well, the birds were kind of turned off by the hot water. They'd land and then fly away <laughs> squawking. <laughs> and so Michael put a whole bunch of coils in so the water would cool off by the time it got. Yeah, that's pretty hot water. Yeah. I'm surprised the birds survived that. Yeah. And then, and that's the engine that. That caused a lot of the trouble with the neighbors at first. When we, Loud? W- yeah, when we first put it in, it was every time the piston, you know, went on its stroke, it, it would, it sounded like an explosion. Well, it and, was. Yeah. Yeah. And this was, again, like shortly before another party, and Michael had to have her running for the party. So the coincidence was that they were just starting to put, they just put a new sewer in to Palm Drive, mm-hmm. which was right outside where the engine was. And... Uh, so the soil was all loose, and, mm. and the workers had, had not finished burying everything. And so it was pretty easy for everybody to work all night and, and dig into that sewer from the engine, and we put the exhaust into the sewer and cemented <laughs> that in <laughs> and then buried it again. And when the workers came back the next day, they didn't know. They just they finished burying everything. Got a bunch of exhaust just been funneled into the sewer <laughs> yeah. system. Yeah. That sewage went somewhere, Scott. <laughs> well, the... When the when the pump engine went after that, he he started it up and it was nice and quiet. Sure, you know, you'd hear this dull thud in the ground and and, yeah, yeah. and the the loose dirt on the top of the soil was jumping sure. up. <laughs> yeah, and and then we started hearing this commotion down the street in the new houses and and uh-huh. uh, people were yelling and. <laughs> yep. We were blasting the water out of people. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, blasting raw sewage out of their toilets. Oh, that was something Michael had to make up to them for. Yeah. <clears throat> but so what we did right at the time in order to alleviate the pressure in the sewer system, we took all the manhole covers off the street <laughs> so that the, so the exhaust would come out of there. And uh, somebody told Michael, he said, you're crazy, somebody's going to drive a car in the, into the yeah. one or fall and, into it. Yeah, and somebody ran down to the variety store, box variety store down on Glendora Avenue yeah. and bought all these multicolored. They had all kinds of crazy stuff down there for crafts. Yeah. They bought all these big multicolored en- uh, umbrellas and put them over the manhole covers. <laughs> so you could look down. Palm Drive is about three quarters of a mile long, and you could look down the whole street and see all these multicolored umbrellas jumping up and down <laughs> in the middle of the street. <laughs> And later he Whack put in a, a, a relief system. So like now when the machine runs, I think the the toilet water just bubbles a little. Wow. <laughs> From popping umbrellas to bubbling water. Uh, well, I got to tell you, this these stories, I mean, this Michael was a character, uh-huh. and this castle represents, I mean, it, it is like a true physical manifestation of his personality. I mean, yeah. it, genuinely. It's, uh, it's incredible. <laughs> uh, I highly recommend everyone come and visit this place. So how can people come here uh, and visit one of your tours what's it like uh, uh, the Glendor Michael gave this place to the Glendora Historical Society in 2005 and they've been figuring out how to run it ever since sure. <laughs> yeah. and they they've done a really good job and they are running regular tours now mm-hmm. they're not on a schedule though you still have to call for an appointment mm-hmm. and I 
I'd better uh, tell you how to get a hold of it. I have to look at the sign outside because it, we have a new <laughs> we have a new website. I think it's just rubeltours.org. Okay. I'll have it on the I'll have it on the web. I'll look okay. it up and put it on the website. Yeah. Uh, but you can you can look there and call up and and uh, and make appointment. Yeah. yeah. Right, do you give tours here? I do sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I don't I they have regular docents who live in Glendora who do all the regular tours. But sure. I give a tour every few months or so to sure. somebody. Yeah, you have to. You got I mean, because you're like your legacy, you know? I mean, oh, you know yeah. these stories. You built this place. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, just talking to you, I can tell that you uh, you really love this place and that you've yeah. got a lot of great stories to tell. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an incredible place. I mean, yeah, it sure is. And you got to see it to believe it. It still boggles my mind when I, I yeah, can't I don't, believe we did it. Yeah, I, I can't either. <laughs> well, congratulations, God. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for talking to me for so long. This has just been absolutely incredible. Okay. Well, uh, I, I had an idea to, uh, there's uh, an, what do you call it, a eulogy that somebody wrote when Michael died Yeah. that I thought was just one of the most beautiful things, and I don't know if it would be appropriate. Sure, you can end the show with, okay. with this. With you. Is it not going to make everyone cry? Is it is this beautiful or Besides is it touching? Me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. if you start like blubbering, I'll... Uh... No, go ahead, please. Well, no, That'd be an honor. It, this is uh, written by Chriswell Goldberg, who used to live here in the 60s and early 70s. And, she was, I think, actually the first woman Michael asked to marry him. Really? <laughs> oh, wow. But anyway, she, she kind of grew up here, too, for a while. And she still comes back. She lives up north. And, but a lot of people, when he died, wrote some beautiful things. But this, is, this, is, this puts it all in a short paragraph. All right. When Michael left the planet, the world lost one of its most unique people. He was the unwilling recipient of the charismatic gene that attracted many people. Those of us fortunate enough to have crossed paths with him were the chosen ones. We got lucky. What we built was not a place, a bottle house, a box factory, a tin palace, a tree house, a bird bath, a castle. We got to build our lives. We got to create ourselves and create a spot for ourselves in the universe. We don't hold you responsible, Michael. We just thank you. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Scott, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode, and I would encourage you to follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And if you really want to stay in touch and get an eye into my brain, you can also subscribe to the newsletter, which will tell you about upcoming guests and all my upcoming projects. And if you never want to miss an episode of Fascinating Nouns, subscribe iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play. And if you want to see everything that I'm doing, go to DanielJGlenn.com. Thank you so much for listening. End of transmission. Thank you.